Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in fellowship and ready uh, ready to study the word, walking by the spirit, walking in the light, as the scripture says. And as a result, we will be able to go forward in our spiritual life. So after a few moments of silent prayer, uh, I will pray. Just before we pray, two things we need to be prayerful for. One is that I um, uh, got some news yesterday about George Meisinger that wasn't good. George had to go to the hospital last night, so be, really be in prayer for George and his family. And also we need to be in prayer for Jim Burney. A uh, prayer request went out a little while ago today that he has gangrene in a, one of his legs. A doctor said just sent him home and uh, called hospice, so we need to be in prayer for Jim and Narice at this time. So please keep them in your prayers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this evening very grateful that we have you to rely upon, that in prayer we can come before your throne of grace and we can bring these requests and petitions. And, Father, we know that uh, you hear us. And, Father, we especially uh, remember uh, Jim and Norris Bernie. We pray for them at this time. Pray for strength for both of them. We pray that you might uh, encourage them uh, during this time from your word and be a true comfort uh, to them, that uh, through the comfort with which you comfort them, they will will be able to comfort others. Father, we also pray for uh, George Meisinger, for his wife Sandy, for... Uh, the doctors who are t- treating him, that you would give them wisdom. And, Father, we continue to pray that he would be responsive to the uh, treatment. But if not, we pray that that he will honor and glorify you during this, uh, this time of, uh, of testing and time of illness. Father, we continue to pray for Chafer Seminary. We also pray for Camp Arete for some of the challenges they're facing as they pull things together during the last month before a camp begins. We pray that you will provide for their needs. And we're so thankful for the leadership that you have given them. Now, Father, we pray for us as we focus on your word this evening that we might be strengthened and encouraged by it and that as we come to understand your plan, it gives us a better handle on what you have revealed to us in your word that we may understand it and interpret it correctly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are uh, covering dispensations. God's plan for the ages. God has a plan and a purpose that he is working out through the ages. As we look at God's plan for the ages, we talked about dispensations, defining it as a an administration of God in human history, that in successive periods of time, 
God administers human history according to uh, different rules. Now, when we think about a definition for dispensation, it focuses on this concept of administration because the English word dispensation, as we study, translates the Greek word group based on oikonomos, house law, oikonomia. Uh, these words focus on the idea of administering or being a good steward, uh, responsibility. So these are at the very essence of what a dispensation is. Dispensation, dispensationalism really isn't focused on how many dispensations there are. But as we look at dispensations, we realize that there are ways to discern that God works through human history in different ways. Obviously, the most a clear distinction is between the time before the cross and the time after the cross. So if we look at the period before the cross, we know that it looks forward to salvation. There were promises and prophecies related to the coming of a Messiah, referred to by the term the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. And that term, the seed, is a key term to watch as you move through the Old Testament. So we know there's at least two broad distinctions, the period before the cross, the period after the cross. When we look at the period before the cross, we see that it can also be divided into two broad periods, two broad ways in which God administered uh, history. One is after the giving of the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai. He is administering human history via a steward, the Jewish people, and the standard is the Mosaic Law. Prior to Sinai, things were different. But when we look at the period prior to Sinai, we see that there's a couple of distinctive events that take place. First of all, we have the fall of man that occurs uh, when Adam sins. So we have a clear distinction between the period before the fall and the period after the fall. There's new revelation given immediately after the fall in Genesis 3. And what we've seen is that each of these shifts takes place when God gives some new revelation. Uh, not all new revelation is related to this. It's revelation that's related to his administration of history, how he is governing human history. So we clearly have the period before the fall and the period after the fall. We have the period before the giving of the Mosaic Law and the period after the Mosaic Law. But if we look at that period from the fall to the Mosaic Law, we also see see that there's another major event that happens that distinguishes how God administers history, and that's the, the Noahic Flood, this worldwide flood that wipes out all of the human race except for eight people. And if you work out the details on the population, recognizing that people lived to be 850 to 950 years of age, you would have had 10 to 14 generations living concurrently rather than uh, three or four, you would have a world population by the uh, at the time of the Noahic flood of around four to three to five billion people. So it's a very populated earth. Just imagine how many people would be on the earth today if everybody that had been born since 1500 or actually since a thousand was still alive. It would be a very crowded planet. So it was a very crowded planet, three to five billion people. 
and God destroyed everyone except for Noah and his family. Eight people survive. There's another event that obviously occurs between the flood and the, and the giving of the law, and that is the event that takes place when God calls out Abraham, and he shifts from working through the entire human race to just working through Abraham and his descendants. So when we look at this, and, and of course that's marked by the giving of a new covenant. So what we see is a period uh, in perfection in the garden, that changes with sin, and there's new revelation. Then there's another event that occurs at the flood, and then there's new revelation in the Noahic covenant. Then there's another event that occurs when God calls Abraham, and there's a new covenant given. And then there's a new covenant given at Mount Sinai. So each of these indicates that God is is changing things. And, and so as in the history of dispensationalism, as theologians began to work with this, they observed these distinctions and different uh, sort of different fathers, you might say, of dispensationalism had different ways in which they set up these periods. And most people don't uh, look at things like this. So I thought I would put this little chart together. Actually, it comes out of Charles Ryrie's book uh, on dispensationalism. And we see uh, four key individuals, theologians, Pierre uh, Poiret, whose dates are 1646 to 1719. So he primarily uh, flourishes during the late 1600s, late 17th century. We have Isaac Watts, the noted hymnist, uh, wrote many, many hymns, in, uh, including um, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, we have James H. Brooks, James Hall Brooks, who is a Presbyterian pastor in St. Louis. He is influential on the last person on the board, Cyrus Ingersom, Ingersom Schofield, C.I. Schofield. So we have these four individuals, and I just wanted to point out how they broke history down. Uh, Poiret said that you have a period from the creation to the deluge. So he doesn't see an obvious distinction we would all see in terms of the fall. Uh, Then from the deluge to Moses, the flood, he doesn't break it with Abraham. Moses to the prophets, which is interesting, from the prophets to Christ. And then he just referred to the present period as manhood and old age. And then the future dispensation of the end times or the millennial kingdom is the renovation of all things. He doesn't have a clear set uh, definition of what makes a dispensation a dispensation. This is one of the earliest schemes for breaking things down. Isaac Watts came along, and he recognized a clear distinction that occurs at the fall called the period before the fall innocency, the period after it, the Adamical dispensation, because Adam's obviously the uh, beginner, the founder, the father of that dispensation. Then he broke the next dispensation down at Noah, so he is similar to the way we're breaking things down. He sees the Abrahamic dispensation and then the Mosaical dispensation up to the cross, and then everything after that is just the Christian dispensation. He was premillennial. He's just not distinguishing that as a distinct dispensation. Then we have James Hall Brooks. Now, there's somebody I left out in the middle for because I didn't have room to put it all on the slide, and that's 
That's, uh, Ra- uh, that's uh, John Nelson Darby. Darby is the founder, as it were, the first person to really systematize uh, dispensationalism. His dates are roughly early 1800s to about 1870s, and he's, uh, he's of Irish descent, comes to England, uh, goes back, gets educated uh, in Ireland, and, and uh, is originally, he's educated as a lawyer. He enters into uh, Anglican ministry. He's very disenchanted with the liberal Anglican church and goes through a bit of a crisis where he, he's got an injury, he's laid up, and he reads through the Bible many times, and as a result of that, he comes to his understanding that there are these distinctions in history, and also he comes to a biblical understanding of the pre-trib rapture. I really did, I'm not getting into this for that reason. Then we have James Hall Brooks, an American Presbyterian, and he sees a breakdown at Eden uh, during uh, what... Uh, Schofield will call innocence what, um, and they have breakdown in the antediluvian period, which we usually call conscience now. He sees the whole period from Noah to Moses as just the patriarchal period. He doesn't see a break with, with, uh, Abraham. Then he had the Mosaic period up to the coming of Christ. And then the period from the time of Christ to the present, he really divides into two sections a messianic age, and the age of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I bring that in is because what I want to teach tonight is something that is not standard for dispensationalism. The question is, isn't there something unique and distinct about the time when Christ is on the earth, the period of the incarnation, the period when Jesus comes to offer the kingdom uh, as the Messiah? And James Hall Brooks clearly saw there's a distinction in that period of time. There's something that's different about that period of those three-plus years of Jesus' ministry on the earth that is different from all the other uh, dispensations. So we want to ask the question, is it legitimate to establish that as a separate dispensation? Since Schofield, Schofield has how many dispensations? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven doesn't identify the tribulation in there at all. Seven dispensations. Every now and then I joke and make jokes about dispensations and the number seven, and they always fall flat. You all don't know anything about dispensationalism. You got seven days of creation. You got seven dispensations. You got seven, uh, you know, seven of this, seven of that. Everything sevens or threes. They always look for these kind of patterns. So that's just, uh, something that they do, and they're sort of locked into this number of seven dispensations. But even the Dallas Theological Seminary doctrinal statement only recognizes or, or identifies three distinct dispensations from, from Ephesians, the age before the cross, the age after the cross, and the future age of the millennial kingdom. They're, they're not being definitive because dispensationalism is not determined by how many dispensations there are. But I think that with Schofield, Schofield really did focus on a criteria in establishing why do we say that a certain period is distinctively identified by an administration? What are those characteristics that set that apart so that we can say this is a distinct administration of God in human history? And so we want to look at that a little bit tonight. Now, we, we talked about the period of the, uh, 
uh, Mosaic law as a dispensation. Then we talked about the covenants that were given during that period that will not be fulfilled until the Lord returns to establish his kingdom. Now, there are some questions I've left hanging that came in on the new covenant because we will definitely be revisiting that when we get to uh, the time of the millennial kingdom and the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. And I think they, they, they're best answered when we uh, look at the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. So I'm putting that off until we cover the next couple of dispensations. So we have uh, the end of the, of the law, but when does the law end according to, uh, according to uh, Romans? When does the law end according to Romans? Christ is the end of the law. Okay, is this at the cross or is this at the incarnation? One of the things we have to remember in defining a dispensation is that when a, a, a new administration of God begins, there are some things that are dominant before that continue, and that there are some things that change. So some things stay the same, but something new is added, and it's the fact that something new gets added that's really the significant thing. I've wrestled with this for years and going back and forth on, on understanding this, and a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting down for, for probably the 20th time reading through uh, Dr. Ryrie's book on dispensationalism, and it, that's what really struck me is the point that he makes that what happens when there is an administrative shift is some things are the same, some things continue, but it's the critical thing is some things new are added. So the qu- real question, it seems to me, is that when we come to the life of Christ, is there something new added? Is there something new that is expected? Now, this time period, let me see. I Let me go to this slide. What we see here are the basic criteria that uh, Schofield set up for determining when a dispensation shifts. The first thing is really a person. Every every section has a certain scripture that, that's covered by it or that it covers. It's a person. Who is there some key person or corporate group like Israel that is that is the focal point of that period of time? And of course, I think that we could say that that Christ is. Secondly, in terms of the name, is there something that distinguishes this in terms of just nomenclature that we could use? Uh, third, is there new revelation? Is there something new that's given? Now, there's always new revelation. Uh, when Isaiah comes along, he's giving new revelation that what wasn't known to Samuel or Elijah or Elisha. When Ezekiel comes along, he adds, and there's always the progress of revelation during the Old Testament. But what this is getting at is, is God revealing something new about how he is administering human history? That's the key. Is, it, is there new information about how God is administering human history? Part of this involves a new responsibility. Is a new responsibility indicated? Is there something that man's responsible for or the steward is responsible for that is additional to what they were responsible for previously. So in the previous dispensation, you have the age, the, the dispensation of the law. Is there something new that 
the Jewish people, this would still be under the age of Israel, that is there something new that the, that the Jews are responsible for in terms of this new revelation? The next thing that he, that Schofield identified is that each, each dispensation seems to have a test, a test of obedience in relation to the new revelation and the new responsibility. So can we identify a distinct test during the time of Christ's ministry that goes beyond what was expected prior to the incarnation? And then is there a unique or distinct failure that takes place that is in relation to the uh, the new revelation, the new responsibility, and the test? And so what we're trying to do is to see if there are significant enough differences during this time this period to indicate that God is administering history differently or at least a component of it because remember I want you to let's go back in time we're going to get in our little time machine and we're going to zoom all the way back to about 2050 BC and God has just brought judgment just about 100 years before on the tower of Babel and God has scattered everybody by by changing up their languages. So as soon as you started having people speak a hundred different languages, it split everybody up into a hundred different groups, and they began to all go off into their little sections where they could uh, t- only be with people who understood their their language. And so you had everything split up. And one group were the descendants of um, uh, of, of Shem as part of the descendants of Shem, and you had one group. They're the descendants of Terah and his son uh, uh, Abraham. Now, God calls Abraham's living down in the southern part of what is now Iraq uh, and in Ur of the Chaldees, and God appeared to him. Didn't appear to anybody else. There are other there are other believers in the world at this time. That's sure. Job lived sometime during this time. We don't know where or when but approximately the same time, could have been a little bit later, could have been a little earlier. There's no mention in the book of Job of of anything distinctively Jewish. There's no mention of anything in the book of Job related to Israel, related to the promised land, related to Canaan, related to uh, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, uh, related to uh, anything, the the law or anything. So Job was probably the first uh, book of the Old Testament written Interestingly enough, it identifies the angelic conflict and suffering, and I think that's for a purpose. That was the first thing God thought that people really needed to understand was the the issue of the angelic conflict and and suffering. And so God is going to speak to one person. Now, there's probably a worldwide population by this time of maybe uh, close to a million. But the only person who knows God's going to do something different is Abraham. He goes to Abraham and he says, I want you to leave your home, your family, and I'm going to take you to a land that I promise you, and I'm going to multiply your descendants, and I'm going to bless the world through you. He's changing how he's going to work through history. It changes in Genesis chapter 12, but 99.9999% of the people in the world have no idea that anything's changed. All Everybody else is now a Gentile. Abraham's the first Jew, and everybody else is still operating under the the previous administration. 
They don't know that anything has changed. So you have Abraham, and uh, Abraham is about probably 60 years of age when he receives that call. By the time he has uh, 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 Isaac, he's close to 100. He dies at 170. He has, Isaac has children. You have Abraham, uh, Abraham's children, Isaac's children, Jacob's children, and you get down to about 1900, 1850 BC. And so you've had, uh, two or three hundred years go by before you start having a multiplication of the Jew- Jewish people. There's only 70 that go down to Egypt. And they're not all Jews. That includes the servants and anybody else that tagged along with him when Jacob and his sons went down with Joseph in Egypt. Nobody else in the world knows what's going on. That's my point. When when God starts to work with Jesus, Jesus shows up in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy with a ministry that is focused on the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The rest of the world doesn't know that something new is happening. The rest of the world doesn't know that the promised Messiah is now on the earth and has entered into human history. And But just because the rest of the world doesn't know this, that's not new in how God changes dispensations. It starts with one person with whom God has given new revelation, and that shows how things change. So I think there's a precedent for this. Now, So in terms of looking at this as a dispensation, there is a key person, and that key person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the focal point of history in the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4 says that Christ was born of a woman. This has been the focal point since Genesis 3 in preparation for human history, the provision of a Messiah. There's a name that we give to, that we can give to this dispensation, the messianic age, because Jesus is offering himself as the Messiah. Uh, so this is a key dispensational term here, that this is the age of the Messiah. Now, when we look at the term Messiah, It comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's just in English, it's just a transliteration, which means the anointed one or appointed one. The Greek counterpart to that is the noun Christos, means the exact same thing, anointed or appointed one. Now, there were a lot of people who were anointed or appointed to different things, but this becomes the primary term that is used to refer to the seed of the woman the one who will be the son of David, the one who's called the son of man in Daniel chapter uh, 7, that this is the one who God is going to bring into the world to save us from sin. Used in a number of passages in the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 2.2 talks about the kings of the earth that will gather against God. This happens in the future. They will gather against the Lord and against his Mashiach, against his anointed in Psalm 2.2. Daniel 9.25 also is a prophecy related to the coming of the Messiah and gives us a bit of a timetable I won't go into, but he says that you can know when the Messiah is going to come because the time of a future command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince is going to be a certain amount of time. So here you have a reference to using the term Mashiach to refer to the 
promised uh, promised one. Daniel 9.26 says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So here it's again a term related to the promised one who will uh, provide salvation for our sins. So this gives us uh, a basis and a reason for understanding this terminology and using this uh, this terminology. He comes in the fullness of times, and he appears on the earth. Now, I have a reference here, Luke 2, and I want to take a look at, uh, get the right program up here. There we go. Uh, that is, let me just fix this. Oh, I didn't want to do that. There we go. Okay, we'll fix this Go over here, close everything. Open our Bible, and we're going to expand the size of the letters so everybody can see it real well. And we're going to go to Luke 2. Two twenty-five. Okay, Luke two twenty-five. This is when Jesus is brought by Mary and Joseph into uh, Jerusalem in order to present him at eight days at present him at the at the temple, and we read that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, or righteous and devout, as uh, uh, it's also translated looking for the consolation of Israel. This is He's looking and expecting the Messiah. Why? How could he pinpoint it like that? Well, he understood Daniel. There was a great messianic expectation because there were many who understood the timetable given in Daniel chapter 9. And where further, it had been revealed to him through personal, uh, personal revelation. Here, I'm going to change this a little bit. This will look a little better. It had been given to him personal revelation by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Mashiach, the Lord's Christos, the Lord's anointed one. So he clearly identifies the one that he's looking for as the Mashiach. So I think a lot of times in the Gospels, if we translate Christ as Mashiach, we catch a better understanding of its connection to the Old Testament. So the Holy Spirit leads him, in verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are uh, letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation." Now, Jesus' name is Yeshua, which means salvation. So what, what he, Simeon would have said in Hebrew was, my eyes have seen your Yeshua. So he's using Jesus' given name as he says this. Which you, and he goes on to say, which you prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So he's recognizing that the Messiah has come. So what this does is it indicates to us, see if I, I keep, I guess, in the 
keep losing these each time I switch over. There's a new um, new revelation given, which is Jesus, and a new responsibility given here, which is to identify and accept the Messiah, uh, which a few did, like Simeon, but the majority did not. I want to go back to the new revelation. I w- want to look at these um, at these passages that we have related to this this uh, new revelation in Matthew three. Uh, 2 and 4.17, uh, we see this. Um, Matthew 3.2, we see that me- a new message is given, new revelation is given. John the Baptist shows up, and what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Until John the Baptist said that, no one had said that. That's a totally new message. The message to this point is the Messiah is coming sometime in the future. The kingdom's coming sometime in the future. The Messiah's coming sometime in the future. Now all of a sudden John the Baptist comes on board and says, the Messiah is here. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. It's almost ready. So that's a definite shift in the message. Uh, Jesus is the one that comes along and says the same thing as well uh, when, when he begins his ministry. Then we have passages like John uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 12, uh, going to verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, what we see here is a totally new revelation of God. Not just, not just a new message, but a new message that's embodied in a person. He is the fullest expression of, of, of deity, that he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Not the glory that's indicated through, like the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, because the first miracle demonstrated his glory when he changed the water into wine. So John has a different view of the glory of God. It is expressive of his character. John goes on to say, in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Greek word for declare here is a word you've heard many times in its English form. It's the Greek word exegeo, where we get our word exegesis. He has exegeted the Father. He has explained the Father. It is only through the Lord that we understand the Father. He is the incarnation of God so that by watching him, we can come to understand understand the Father. So we clearly have a new revelation given uh, in this dispensation. Going back to our to the slide here, pulling up the... We have this new responsibility then to identify and accept the Messiah. He's making a messianic claim, and we have to understand that. And so this becomes the test to accept Jesus as the Messiah, Matthew 16, 15 through 17. This is the context of this. Uh, You can turn there if you wish. I'm not going to go back to Lagos, go through all this again. But if you look at Matthew 15, this is a context where Jesus has asked the disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And in Matthew 16, 15, excuse me. I typed that in Matthew 16, 15. 
They, and Jesus came into to uh, came to them at Caesarea Philippi, said, "Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?" The Son of Man was a clearly understood messianic title. So they said, "Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah." And then Jesus said, "But who do you say that I am?" That's the key thing. And Peter answered and said, "You are the Messiah." He says, "You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." He has accurately understood who Jesus is. So this is the test. The new revelation is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. The new responsibility is to identify and accept the Messiah, him as Messiah. And the test is to accept him as the Messiah and to follow him. Now, there's a failure that comes along that the Jews, both in terms of the leadership and the masses, rejected him. Now, there were still tens of thousands that accepted him as the Messiah, but not the majority and not the leadership, which represented the nation. Now, you may like it or not like it, but every decision that our president and Congress makes is your decision. We have a representative government, and the decisions that they make are your decisions. The votes that your congressman makes in Congress is your vote. If you don't like it, Throw him out. Get somebody else. But if you don't get somebody else, he's still representing your district, and his votes are your vote. Whether we like it or not, that's what representative means. So the leaders represented the people. They rejected him. John 1, 10 through 12, talks about the fact that Jesus came into his own, and the, his own received him not. They did not accept him as the Messiah. And then the key passage to look at is in Matthew 12. So turn with me to Matthew 12. I will go back to um, uh, Logos for this in Matthew 12 because this is a critical chapter. This is when everything changes in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. Up, through, up until we get to chapter 12, there's an increasing hostility and antagonism between Jesus and the religious leadership. And it all boils over when we get to chapter 12. And what happens is in verse 14, we're told that the Pharisees went out and plotted against him. He's just performed a couple of, uh, of, of miracles on the Sabbath, violating their traditions, violating their law. And then when they challenge him on that, um, he shows that that he's more consistent with the law than they are, and he's grace oriented. They won't. They don't even want him to heal uh, on the uh, on the Sabbath. And so Jesus, the response of Jesus in verse fifteen is that he withdrew from there, but the multitudes follow him, and he continues to heal on the Sabbath. And this is all evidence that's described in the next few verses, uh, which show that he is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament as a Messiah. And then he heals a demon-possessed man, cast out the demon, and everyone is amazed and say, can this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? And this is really irritating the Pharisees at this time. And so when they heard this, they said, this fellow doesn't cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub was just another term they used to describe Satan. It was just another sort of a nickname for Satan. Uh, that he's the one who casts out the demons, uh, that Jesus uses the, uh, Satan to cast out the demons. And Jesus knew their thoughts and his omniscience, 
His deities and functioning, not to solve a problem in his life. See, he still used his divine attributes in areas that to demonstrate that he was who he claimed to be. He doesn't use his divine attributes to solve the problems in his life. That's one of the most important things to understand about the incarnation. Jesus is fully human, and in his humanity, he faces all the problems by handling them on the basis of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, just like we do. That's why he's an example to follow. If he's handling his problems on the basis of his divine omnipotence, we can't do that. There's no example to follow. So he, But that doesn't mean that he disregards or never uses his, his deity. Some people have gotten that idea. He uses his deity to change the water into wine. He's showing that he is the God-man. And there are other times when he clearly shows, accesses his omnipotence and his omniscience because it doesn't have anything to do with solving his own personal problems in terms of his own individual uh, spiritual life. So he says if uh, he knows their thoughts, and he says every kingdom divided against itself, this would be the kingdom of Satan, he's clearly identifying that the Pharisees are part of the kingdom of Satan. Remember in John chapter 10, he said, you're the, your father, the devil. So here he's saying every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, he's showing, this is the evidence that the kingdom is being offered in the presence and the person of the Messiah who is, who is before you. And if I cast out these demons uh, by, by the Spirit of God, then that's evidence that the kingdom of God is in your presence. And then he says, um, after this little interchange, he says, Therefore I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now, this is an interesting passage that probably half of you are confused about because this is talking about an unforgivable sin. But the question, first question we need to ask, is this talking about an absolute unforgivable sin? Is this a sin that Jesus didn't pay for? Well, there are too many passages that said Jesus paid for every sin. So Jesus isn't talking about forgiveness in terms of the absolute sense. Uh, if a person uh, said one day Jesus cast out uh, demons by, by, the, uh, by Beelzebub, if that's non-forgivable, could that person change his mind the next day and be saved? Sure, that's what grace is. Grace means that, uh, that Christ paid for all sin. If we are antagonistic like the Apostle Paul, and we murder Christians and we persecute the body of Christ, is there still forgiveness? Yes, there is in that absolute sense. But what Jesus is talking about here is relative forgiveness. In other words, is there a point of no return where the Pharisees have rejected him as Messiah, rejected him as Messiah, rejected him as Messiah? Is there a point where Jesus is going to say, okay, you've rejected me enough, it's solid, now you're going to reap the consequences of your rejection of me as Messiah, and there's going to be divine judgment now upon the nation because I have come to my people 
They have firmly and finally rejected me, and judgment will come. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about the fact that this is when this, this hostility by the Pharisees finally comes to a head. They make their final and absolute decision to reject Jesus as Messiah, and as a result of that, Jesus is saying that that the punishment on the nation as a result of that will be inevitable, that there will not be a relative forgiveness of the nation for this, and it's set in stone now, you've rejected me as Messiah, you will eventually go out under the fifth cycle of discipline in A.D. 70. He goes on to say in Matthew 12:32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. When's the age to come? If you're thinking the millennium, you're wrong. He's in the time period, the age of the law, the age of Israel. He's in his dispensation, which is before the cross. The next age to come is the church age. The church age comes after the cross, after Pentecost. It's in the early part of the church age in A.D. 70 that Israel is destroyed as a nation and Jerusalem is destroyed as a nation. This is talking about a temporal judgment, not an eternal judgment. It is when Jesus says firmly that your, your volition has set in stone now and uh, you cannot be forgiven from this decision. In other words, temporally, you will come under divine judgment. So this is what happens, uh, and this is why this is so critical. From Matthew 13 on, Jesus no longer, nobody ever again says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nobody ever talks again about the kingdom of heaven being, being ready. Nobody offers him the kingdom again until when? We just studied this in Acts. Until after the ascension. And then there's another offer. Now that offer, if they had accepted it, would not have uh, done away with the judgment that was coming. It just would have compressed the ultimate fulfillment of the rest of, of, of prophecy. They still would have been destroyed by the Romans. That would have been part, though, of the destruction of Daniel's 70th week. And then there would have been a restoration of the nation. It would have been compressed. But they didn't repent. They didn't accept the kingdom offer in the early part of the church age. And so we went on into the church age, and we're still waiting for the Lord to return uh, at the rapture. So this is what's happening in terms of this as a dispensation. Now, there's also a judgment as part of our criteria. Christ is judged at the cross. There is a judgment. There's two judgments, actually. There's a judgment of Christ being judged on the cross for the sins of the world. And there's the judgment of the nation Israel that will that is announced and will come about because they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But nevertheless, whenever there's judgment, there's also grace. Grace is the ultimate provision of God's grace here in terms of salvation. He has sent the second person of the Trinity to die on the cross for our sins. He pays the penalty, Scripture says, for all sin, for every sin, including the sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's not unforgivable in an absolute sense because other Scripture clearly teaches Jesus died for all sin. He paid the penalty for all sin so that all we have to do is trust in him. 
There is eternal forgiveness. There were many of those Pharisees who were part of that group that rejected him, and later on in Acts uh, Acts 4 and Acts 5 and Acts 6, what do we find? We find that many Pharisees came to trust in Jesus as the Messiah. So this is not talking about their personal destiny in Matthew chapter 12. It's talking about how their decision as the leadership of the nation sets the course uh, inevitably to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And then finally what we see here is the volitional element uh, has to do with accepting or rejecting Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And it has implications for the angelic conflict because Satan's strategic defeat occurs at the cross. He is still fighting. I think that strategically the the, uh, Third Reich was destroyed at Normandy. But it still took almost a year before they were tactically defeated. But strategically, they could not recover once the Allied troops had secured a foothold on the Normandy Peninsula. It took another year, though, to clean everything up. There was still a lot of fight left in them. And that's the case we have with with, uh, Satan. He is strategically defeated at the cross. He cannot recover from what Christ did on the cross. But he is not going to give up. He has a lot of fight left in him, and he's uh, still fighting. And so we're living in a period of an intensification uh, of, uh, uh, of the angelic conflict. But during the time when Christ is on the earth, there's intensified satanic opposition unlike any other time in history. Even today, we don't have the overt manifestations of demonism and satanic opposition that you did during the time of Christ. And that's when you have all of this demon possession. And if you have other questions about that, I encourage you to get my book in the back on spiritual warfare where we go into some of these details a lot more. But the reality is that you don't... How many people were demon-possessed in the Old Testament? None. Not one. How many people have a problem with demon possession uh, in the epistles? None. You have problems with with demonic activity during the Gospels when Jesus is on the earth, and you have problems with demonic activity and and, uh, possession in the early part of Acts, and after that, there's no more mention of it. Not once in any of the epistles is there any instruction from uh, Paul or Peter or John on how to handle demon possession. Not one. if, If, as the epistles claim that they are the sufficient standard, the sufficient revelation for how to handle all the problems, for how a church-age believer can handle every problem he faces in this life. And there is a deafening silence about the problem of demon possession or direct demonic assault. Then there's something significant about that. Now, it warns about indirect demonic activity that the world system is the expression of demonic thought and that we are, uh, Satan is our enemy and he's going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But this isn't the same as what's happening during the period of the incarnation when Christ is on the earth. That was much more, uh, a much greater manifestation uh, that, um, that we saw during that period. So the angelic conflict is intensified to an extreme level 
during the three and a half years or so that Jesus is on the earth. And then things gradually die down, and then we, we're, we're in the church age with a slightly different dynamic, as we will see. So this introduces then the dispensation of grace. Now, I'm going to stop here. We're going to come back and talk about the dispensation of grace next time. Actually, I'm going to take a couple of minutes and go through it because it's pretty quick, and most of you will understand it. First of all, the key person is Paul. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and Paul is the one who gives the greatest level of information about the present church age. It's called the dispensation of grace based on John 1.17, that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this dispensation, grace is now displayed in a way distinct from earlier dispensations. There was, there was grace from the time, from the time of the, of, of the fall. But it's, there's something distinctive about the manifestation of grace in this dispensation so that the scriptures can say that grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. The responsibilities are to accept the gift of righteousness, which God offers to all men through the Messiah at no cost. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It is freely given to us by faith alone. Uh, we see that there is a basic test, and that is, will man accept the free gift of God's grace, and will God accept God's grace in sanctification? Those are the two issues. There's only one way to heaven, and there's only one way to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The failure is that most will reject it in this dispensation. Most human beings since the time of Christ, have rejected the gospel. They've either rejected the um, general revelation of God in the heavens and turned to idolatry, or if they've heard the gospel, they've rejected it. The vast majority of human beings that have lived the last 2,000 years have never trusted Christ as Savior. Sixth, there will be a judgment that comes after the rapture of the church on the human race, the great tribulation known as uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. This is relates to the angelic conflict because this is a time when God pulls out all the restraints from Satan. The restrainer is removed, according to Second Thessalonians 2, and Satan just has a temper tantrum. And there's no period in human history that is uh, wor- worse than that period. It is also the conclusion to the age of Israel. So I'm going to stop there. Next week, we're going to get into some really tremendous material because as we start talking about the church age, we have to go back to one of our favorite topics, and that's understanding interpretation. And it's a lead-in to understanding some things that are a little more advanced with dispensationalism that we'll get to in probably three or four weeks. But we have to understand some things about the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament and how the writers of the New Testament use the Old Testament. You've gone through this with me some. I've expanded this more than I've ever taught it before, and we're going to go through a lot of new material in the next couple of weeks, so you'll enjoy that. Barb, do anybody have any questions? Maybe somebody here has some questions as well. So, No, go ahead. Uh, this is from... Uh, Tony in Kearney, Nebraska. I, too, have struggled with this time frame, whether it is a separate dispensation or not. I have always viewed Matthew 11.13 and Luke 16.16 as stating that only the message changes but not the administration. 
If this is a different dispensation, how do we reckon, for instance, when Jesus heals the leper and tells him to show himself to the priest and bring the gift Moses commanded, clearly being in subject to the Mosaic law? Right. See, the Mosaic law is still in effect. Remember, when I define this, specifically in light of that passage, that some things continue and some things change. Now, when you go back to the Old Testament models, when you look at the pattern of the change from uh, the age of conscience before the flood and after the flood, there's only a couple of things that change in terms of the Noahic covenant. You can now eat meat, and they, they have the delegation of judicial authority uh, to take uh, human life in the case of execution uh, of murder. Those are basically the only things that really change uh, everything else in terms of patriarchal sacrifice, the focus on family and, and family worship. All of that stays the same going from uh, the period before the flood to after the flood. A couple of things change. So the Mosaic law is still operative. That's part of what stays the same if this is a distinct dispensation. But there's clearly new things. There's a new revelation, a new expectation, a new responsibility, a new test. That's what makes it different. It's what's new that's added. Not that the, uh, the fact that the Mosaic law continues is not significant. Other things have continued from one generation, from one dispensation to another. Okay, I think that'll help him work through this. Bobby, what about the witch of Endor? She was not demon possessed. No, she was not demon possessed. She utilized a demon, but you don't have demon possession vocabulary used in the passage. It's an external. The the question that was asked was, "What about the witch of Endor? Was she demon possessed?" And in the passage, it talks about uh, that a demonic voice would come up from the ground. It's not coming out of her. So she is uh, demonic influence, just like Saul. Uh, Saul, in, in the passage with Saul, that the demon comes upon him, comes to him, but it doesn't ever use the Greek preposition for in. And it, it and when David comes and plays the harp to relieve Saul never says that the demon came out of him. It just left him alone. No, he would not have been, but I'm just saying that that's the vocabulary that you have in the New Testament passages on demon possession are all related to a demon going into and out of. There, he's cast out of, he comes out of. There's that in and out vocabulary that's never used of anyone in the Old Testament. So you don't have that kind of language. That was a good clarification. Okay, anybody else have any question? One, uh, yes. Yes, sir. Uh, in uh, Matthew 12, uh, 32, it speaks about uh, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, he's addressing people who are living under the law. Right. And the next age being the church age, but earlier tonight you referred to Messianic age. Excuse me? Yeah, the Messianic Dispensation. Many of us were taught, some of us were taught, about this period of time being the dispensation of the hypostatic union. Right, right. Is that, what you're, is that actually a dispensation? Is that what you're yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm using a better term. I'm using, because Jesus comes, Jesus didn't come to say, I'm the hypostatic union. Jesus came to say, I'm the Messiah. I think calling it the Messianic age 
focuses on what the biblical message is. Now, the important thing about this uh, that I didn't stress yet is that Jesus comes as the Messiah to fulfill the messianic promises and prophecies. And, and as we saw in Matthew five seventeen and nineteen, or seventeen and eighteen, he's saying that I have come uh, to fulfill the law. But so he fulfills everything before. It's like a it's a hinge in history, and everything before is fulfilled in Jesus. But Jesus sets the precedent for the future church age by the by his walk by the Spirit. So. Our, the precedent for the Christian life is not the Mosaic Law. The precedent for the Christian life is is not the Old Testament. It's the walk of Christ because we are in him. He is our high priest. That's the key element there that is what you're talking about, is that, that, that with that Messianic age, it becomes a hinge dispensation, fulfills everything before, but it sets the precedent for everything that comes after. Not an age. Not an age like the age of the Gentiles or the age of Israel. It's a dispensation. In, in the age of Israel, you have the dispensation of the patriarchs or promise. You have the dispensation of the law. And then you have the, dispens- the messianic dispensation, which is just covers those three years. And if you, if you were a Jew and you lived outside of the land of Israel, you probably knew nothing about any, anything changing because you didn't hear that message. Not, and that would not be any different from somebody who was living in uh, Western Europe or North Africa or in uh, Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, when God calls out Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees. Everything changes with Genesis 12.1, but the only person that knew it was Abraham. So just because there's a change doesn't mean everybody in the world has to know about it. Just the key person knows about it. Does that help? Okay, I'm trying to cl- kind of refine and clarify this a little bit more. Uh, I totally understand what you mean by the hinge age, Robbie. Yeah. I don't know how to speak about that. Right, right. And see, this, is what, this, is, this wasn't something new, this idea that this uh, – that's why I bring James Hall Brooks into it. You had others besides James Hall Brooks who, who thought that uh, the, the time of, of the incarnation was a distinct dispensation. What my, my issue is, is that Schofield came along, and since Schofield, nobody's thought about these things anymore. Nobody's asked, well, what about? In fact, I called up Mike Stallard or emailed him a couple of weeks ago, and I said, this would be a good topic for one of the dispensational hermeneutic study group meetings because everybody just assumes and nobody wants to rethink the, this framework that Schofield left. They just want to accept that and go on. But I think that according to the criteria that Schofield laid out, that there, that if you look at each of those categories, a very strong case can be made that this is a, a distinct dispensation. New revelation, new responsibility, new message, everything's there. All right? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to just to reflect upon your word, to think about your revelation, to try to understand it and uh, and make some sense and, and see how you have worked in history and how things change, but also how things continue, that, that above all things you have operated with, toward mankind with grace, and the principle of salvation has always been by faith alone, either in the promise of a coming Savior who would redeem us from sin or in the fulfillment of that promise, looking to Jesus as the only object of our faith 
that by faith alone in him alone we have eternal life. Help us to think about these things we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen.